morning, everybody. A couple of pastor things before I transform into a preacher. I want to encourage you guys, if you haven't signed up for our email and you'd like to, uh, to do that uh, by stopping off at our welcome desk, or we'll have a couple of mechanisms that uh, we'll be loud about this week. But I'm going to be sending out a few emails over the next couple of months, just spilling my heart a little bit and talking about uh, the future of our church and some things related to uh, what we're trusting God for. So if you receive the emails, uh, you see a message from your pastor, open it up. And don't just open the email, open up your heart to it. And if you don't have those emails coming your way, and you would like to, then uh, sign up for those. We'll give you that mechanism to be able to do that. And also, this is a time of year where we have elder nominations, and people have already started uh, nominating elders. And this is, these are the folks who help me lead the church. They provide support, encouragement, and accountability to me. And uh, doctrine. they oversee the doctrine, the direction, and the discipline of the church. And uh, we try to find those uh, folks who are qualified related to what the scripture says in uh, Timothy and Titus and 1 Peter 5 and such. So if you have any nominations, let us know. Hit me up on my cell phone, 601-613-2312. Look forward to hearing from you uh, there. Now I'm going to trans- transform into the preacher, the preacher man. When I worked uh, in campus ministry at the University of Miami all those years ago, you football guys may remember a guy named Warren Sapp, and we'd walk into the locker room and Warren Sapp would call me, preacher man, hey preacher man. So I'll be the, the preacher man now. We're in week number five of this series, Thriving in Babylon, and we're going to look today at writing on the wall. Have you heard this expression? All of us have heard the saying, the writing on the wall. It usually has connotations of doom and gloom, of some impending danger or some inevitable reality. What were you thinking? You're acting surprised. Didn't you see the writing on the wall? This is a saying, and it's today's sermon, and I want you to know, historically, that this expression, the writing on the wall, I don't know if you would, if you were posed the question, if you would guess if it was an American thing or European thing or some other continent or century or whatever, but it comes from Daniel chapter five, the writing on the wall. And it's terrifying and odd and a little bit creepy, just giving you a warning of where we're going today, but a good, good story, Daniel chapter five, turn there if you will, or just be ready to follow with me on the screen, the writing on the wall and the sermon takes us to a drinking party. Can I get an amen, church? Can we raise the glass for communion today? We're going we're gonna to preach from a drinking party about writing on the wall. So let's jump into it, Daniel 5.1. Isn't it funny, last week we talked about coffee in the sanctuary, and we were talking about John Piper, and just giving different thoughts on worship, and being attentive, and not being distracting, and having coffee, and what that means. And right when we're talking about that, a guy walks into church. Remember him? I don't know if he's here today. Probably not, because we laughed at him. He walked in, he's like blowing his coffee. You know, we all just like, ha, 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 ha. And I actually saw him at Saltine this week and asked him where he'd be going to church this Sunday since uh, y'all mocked him. Anybody mock him? Did y'all laugh last week? Anybody want to confess that? Daniel 5, 1, I'm just talking. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Hold on a second. King Belshazzar? What about the other guy? When we left off, who was our king? King Nebuchadnezzar, we've been talking about him, and now we're introduced to a new king. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had reigned over the Babylonian Empire. They were middle of the pack, and they began to assert themselves with their men, with their military, their weaponry, uh, their bloodthirsty uh, pursuit of world domination. And we pick up this story of Daniel in the first chapter, of course, and Daniel's the central character, but Nebuchadnezzar has played a huge part And all of a sudden, there's a new king. Well, let's make sense of that. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar was the leader of the Babylonian Empire. They besieged Jerusalem. They ransacked it. They pillaged and they plundered it. And they stole and they kidnapped. And they took four men 
in particular. And we see Nebuchadnezzar, his heart just vacillating and going back and forth. He's a hard-hearted man. And then remarkably, his heart uh, grows soft and he seems open to the Lord. And we said that there's a little King Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. But he rules and reigns for, for this lengthy time. Daniel was a teenager when we were introduced to him and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names that they were given. They were indoctrinated into a graduate school program of paganism and debauchery. Don't just learn about Babylon, but become Babylonians. But Daniel 1.8 says Daniel, uh, he did not defile himself. He purposed in his heart. He made up his mind ahead of time, a great path for walking in integrity, even in our day. He made up his mind ahead of time that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He wanted to serve the one true living God, Yahweh, uh, not Marduk, the God, the, the, the God or gods of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar did these things, and here's what's kind of tripping, but you need to understand, as we pick up the story from chapter 4 to 5, some 45 to 50 years have transpired. So Nebuchadnezzar, just like the dream of the statue and just like the dream of the tree, uh, he was cut down, timber, he was, statue, he was toppled. And what God said to be true through Daniel, Daniel 2.20 and Daniel 2.44 is true that, look, when it comes to kingdoms and corporations and countries and leaders, there, there's only one, only one king. Hear, hear me today, only one one king. I joke with our staff in the commons at the coffee bar way before church. I'm like, when I walk up on the stage today, I want y'all to say out loud, long live the king. And none of them were willing to do that, which is, says a lot about them. Look, there's, there's only one king, only one king. And everybody whose ego gets large, everybody who thinks they're running something that's never going to end uh, needs to think again. And that's the, the, the danger of the rebellious, proud, uh, unsurrendered heart. So we're introduced to this new king, Belshazzar, and he is, by the way, um, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and we pick it up, they're drinking. And what happens when you drink? Don't act like you don't know, 11 o'clock. Under the influence of the wine, 9.30, you know, they don't, they don't drink, 11 o'clock. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. I want to give this chapter five in three parts. And the first part is God, who he really is. God, who he really is. We see in this king some of the same patterns that his grandfather, some of the same patterns that his predecessor uh, had in his own heart. We, we see that he's showing off. We see uh, defiance. We see an open dishonoring of God. What he's doing is customary at the time, but he's taking the artifacts, the temples and the stuff stolen from the temple, and he's parading it in front of them to say, uh, your God is lesser than our God. His life was not honoring God. And it's so easy for us to look at this ancient story and say, oh, you know, we would never do that. You imagine this scene playing out. It's, it's, there's revelry and celebration of the self and, and other gods, not the true and living God. It's easy to go, well, we would never do that. We're not going to put tequila in the communion and go crazy in here worshiping other gods, but look at what we do. Here's a, here's a modern view of God. It's buffet God where, you know, you, you go to the buffet and what do you do at a buffet? You take what you want and leave what you don't. Uh, in Mississippi, we would probably say more bacon and less broccoli. 
hey, I want a God. You know what? I, you want a loving God? Who wants a loving God? Raise, raise your hand if you're with me. Like, you want to you love you, you want a forgiving God? Man, I, I want a forgiving God. You want a God who's your Savior? I mean, if, if there's a hell, you, you don't want to go there. If there's a heaven, you want to go there. You want a Savior. You want a Savior God? But, but to take him as Savior is also to take him as Lord, which means you're under his authority, which means you do what he say, which means you, you have a reverence for living your life differently and not just following along with the crowd. Oh, we want the loving God, the forgiving God, but what about the just judge? What about the one that says every life will be accountable for what they did? What, what about that God? And we, it's so easy for us to have a buffet view of God to say, well, this is the parts of God that we want and this is the part of God that we don't want. We dishonor him in our own ways. So let's check our hearts and let's check the way we live instead of just uh, judging these guys for all their errors. Let's pick back up with it. Uh, at that moment, this is when it gets, I told you it's going to be terrifying and odd, but it is Halloween. Here we go. At the, that moment, the fingers of man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. Stop. Y'all remember Adam's family? Remember the thing in Adam's family that became the hand? Dun, 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 dun. All right. Uh, plaster of the king's palace wall. Next to the, okay. As the king watched that, the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he wet himself. That's what it means. And his knees knocked together. Bad day. Bad day. This party, I mean, look at what he was doing. If you imagine yourself in the scenario, what's he doing? The king is doing what kings do. He's giving orders. The king's got people, and everybody in the room uh, is under his authority. He's there to impress people. So when he brings out the drink, when he's showing people what he's got, and by the way, Daniel just goes into the details of the men who were uh, under the king. There's the governors and the treasurers and the justices and the judges and the consuls. There's the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the satraps. I think I've just named 80% of what's mentioned in Daniel. All these different roles that are all under the king, this vast empire, and he's showing out, and this is a bad moment. This is a very bad moment when we're showing out. And so like the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has, this king, Belshazzar, experiences this inscription, this hand, this writing on the wall. Verse 10, because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen, this is his mom, came to the banquet hall, made, uh, grandmother, made the king live forever. She said, don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face will be pale. This is almost worse than what we just read. This is uh, this is the king being portrayed as a wimp. This is mommy. You get a certain age, people, men in particular, where you don't want mommy to be there for you, having to rescue you. And this is a, a terrible scene saying, suck it up, be a man, uh, you can do better. So what does she do? This, this uh, queen remembers uh, Daniel. And where is Daniel? Uh, the first part of the story is God for who he is. The second part of chapter 5 in this story is where you are. Daniel, where are you? Remember, 45, 50 years had transpired between chapters 4 and chapters 5. Daniel is an old man. We've gone from teenager Daniel being kidnapped to old man Daniel. He's kicking it in the nursing home. There's a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. The, in the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one, the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give you 
the interpretation. The interesting thing here is that he offered, like the paranoia, like the insecurity and fear of the king before him, Belshazzar is like, what does this inscription mean? He brings in his advisors. You notice the pattern in Daniel? He brings in his advisors. You do this if you're a leader of a company. You bring in some of your top women and men. They sit around a table and you ask them, what should we do? What's the path forward? It's common in leading things, very common back then to bring in these people, but they, they're, they, they have multiple gods or no gods. So they're trying to make sense because in every heart, is this deep-seated desire to make sense of what we experience. How do we interpret this? So this king says, I'm bringing in my guys, and he makes them this promise. He says, if you tell me what this inscription, this terrifyingly odd hand, this writing on the wall means, if you tell me uh, what it means, I'm going to clothe you in purple. I'll give you gold chains, and you'll be the third highest official in the land. Purple clothing back then, not so much now, but purple clothing was a sign of wealth and opulence. Gold chain, well, we still got the bling in our day. I don't need to explain that. And you'll be the third highest official. You'll go from kind of lower on the rung to way high. In fact, the third highest person. And uh, he makes this promise, but none of them, as the dream, two dreams before, none of these men, none of these voices could make sense. They had to have shown out stuff in the past. They had to show some ability to solve riddles and have wisdom and make sense of things but when it mattered they couldn't they couldn't do it so the queen thinks about Daniel and Daniel comes and Daniel answers but notice his response then Daniel answered the king you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else however I will read the inscription for the king and make the make the interpretation known to him Daniel at any point from 13 14 15 years old when he was kidnapped to this life now as an old man He could have started an insurrection the more power and influence he got as he rose up the ranks. He could have sought to sabotage, but everywhere, at every turn, wherever he was, Daniel sought to serve. Let's stop there for a second. Everywhere he was, he sought to serve. This is valuable, and Jeremiah would write to those exiled in Babylon later. He would say this, pursue the well-being of the city. I have deported you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. I'm looking at a couple of you who were at the same meeting that I was at in Fondren a few weeks ago. We're talking about a city plan. We're talking about what our city needs. We're talking about living and housing and gardens and places to walk and run and exercise, how to make our neighborhood, this beautiful neighborhood of Fondren, better. Do you agree with that, whether it's here or wherever? When the city thrives, then you thrive because we're connected together. It's important. All these things matter, lights and streets and roads and trash and places to hang out and third spaces that we enjoy, that we talk about and invite others to. It's really important. This inscription, by the way, in a different version, this is the Christian Standard Bible that I've been preaching from a lot more lately, but most of the versions, some of them say, uh, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Do you know that this inscription exists in Fondren? It's here, and some of you pass it a lot if this is your neighborhood. It's over here on the green wall um, on on Dueling Avenue, and it's right there. Uh, It says, Jeremiah 29, 7, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Uh, Wherever you are, serve there. This is a great principle. Honor God right where you are and not where you want to be. This job, I feel overworked, overlooked, undervalued. I'm frustrated. I don't like it. Honor God right where you are and not where you want to be. 
this home, this apartment that I'm in, I don't like it. It's infested. It's just, it's tight. It's, it, it's not spacious. It doesn't look good like the things on HGTV. I just, I don't like it. I don't want it. Honor God right where you are and not where you want to be. This family that I'm in, the, the people, I mean, it's toxic and there's, there's hurt and there's pain. And there's all kind of stuff that gets dug up from the past. It's not healthy for me. I'm not, I'm not loving and getting along. I don't feel it at my home. Honor God right where you are and not where you want to be. This body that you're living in, you don't like it. it. It doesn't look as good as the models on Instagram. Honor God right where you are and not where you want to be. We learn this from Daniel and it's a principle of living where it look look at me your life could flourish if you live this way the easiest thing and this is when we want to we want to spark insurrections and sabotage people around us by our discontentedness and not being willing to be where we are and serve where we are and everywhere he was in captivity as he began to rose through the ranks he served God faithfully right where he is who God is and where you are and then the third part of chapter five and the sermon's not done yet but it's uh, uh it's knowing. It's what you know. What you know. Look at uh, this portion. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness, he gave him all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. That's not the way to lead, by the way. This week, I've learned of two stories. I was with a group. Susan and I were with a group of pastors in San Antonio this week. And we were reading the headlines. Maybe you saw some of them. But two pastors, well-known in America, have been asked to step down. It's not known that if there's a sex or money scandal behind it. But it is an abuse of power. It's people who they let it go to their heads. And they see their spiritual leadership entrusted to them by God as a way to power up on people. This is uh, not the way to lead. If someone's in your life and they sense that you're tilted in this direction, stop and get help and surrender that and listen to the people that are giving you criticism. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. And when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. There's sad words to me this is among the saddest in this chapter those last few but you his successor belshazzar have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this even though you knew even though you knew your alcoholic father was ravaging his health and ruining the family you knew, but now look at you. Uh, your mother, you knew your mother and her unwillingness to forgive, to humble herself. Her, the, the forgiveness she could have offered could have healed the family. Even though you knew, now look at you. Your passive indifference, your apathy, your lack of commitment to God and taking him seriously at his word and committing to a community of Christian people who will help you grow in your faith. You've seen it. You've seen people leave the faith before they, uh, or leave the community of faith before they leave the faith. You, you knew, but now look at you. What have you done with what you've known? Even though you knew all of this, even though you knew. The challenge this morning in three parts from chapter five is God as who he is, not who you want him to be. And then where you are, even if it's not where you want to be, serving him faithfully. And the third part is to 
live this out practically. What you know, like live it out. Make it a part of your life. What a, what a sad verse. We end this portion. Uh, listen to this. Instead, you exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Boy, it's important to know who controls things. And if anybody is given to the illusion of self-mastery and control, lay that down. There's somebody who controls it. And as we talked about last week, for the sinful, proud, rebellious heart, it's humbling ourselves. Because God gives, he opposes the proud, James chapter 4, but he gives grace to the humble. And we see that in the king's and it's the king of our heart as well. I'm going to give you three questions as we round toward home that we need to ask ourselves related to this story, and particularly Belshazzar, the king. What am I numbing out with? That's a funny question, but an important one. What am I, what am I numbing out with? I'll show you a picture. This is a common illustration. I'm certainly not the first, but this is a, an iceberg. Oh, this is an iceberg, and you know the science behind icebergs that... There's the part that you see, but it's just a small portion that almost all of the iceberg is below the surface. And for you and I, that's the seat of your emotions, that's your emotional well-being, that's your spiritual health, that's pain, junk, and trauma in your life. And we live above the surface lives most of the time. And it's the under the surface stuff that can get the best of us. I saw a video this week, and it's honestly uh, disturbing, but I think an important one to show. I want to I show this two-minute clip, and it's related to mental health, particularly men's mental health, which we need to talk about more and more. But think about the iceberg, and think about what you may be numbing out with when you look at this quick clip.
I imagine Belshazzar and had a jacked up childhood in Babylon. He was rich and entitled and incredibly lonely. And here's a tripping thing about this revelry and this party where God was dishonored and the king made it about himself, seeking to impress those around him. Is that this party was 539 B.C. And the, Merds, the, I'm sorry, the Medes and the Persians were less than 50 miles away planning their attack. And here's the thing, you with me? Bel, Bel, Belshazzar, he knew about it. This wasn't a surprise attack. This, this wasn't three weeks ago, October 7th, in a field in Israel where revelers and concert goers at a musical festival, music festival, had no idea that Hamas was parachuting in to slaughter them. No idea. But this king, he knew. He knew, and so why? Why would he do this? You could postulate some theories that uh, he was pressing ahead to, to, you know, to pose and to, to seek to impress other people. You could say that he was uh, living in a drunken denial, uh, using this uh, sex and drugs and alcohol as a way to deny reality. Uh, he was putting up a brave front or he was deluded and thought that he was, he was so untaxed from reality that um, he thought he was invincible. And what could happen to a person to get them to a place where they could just numb out, knowing that there's trouble ahead? And though it seems far-fetched, I want to ask you the very same question. What are you numbing out with? In what ways are you not facing reality and there's, there's, there's something coming. There's writing on the wall. Uh, there's a real enemy. You, you should know that if you open up the book. There's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Stay in rank and be on your knees and live surrendered and think about your life below the iceberg. Can we do that together? Men, can we do that together? Can we think about life below the iceberg? Can we check on each other and can we realize the reality of numbing out our pain? The, there's a, a writer who, uh, he's an atheist. His name is Ernst Becker, and he wrote a book uh, called The Denial of Death. And he said that when we face uh, our mortality, that we seek uh, ways to divert from it or to console, to distract or console from the reality of our death. And he says there's a few ways that we do this. And I was reading this book and thinking of this king, he does all three of them. He says the, the first way is reputation. It's crafting a careful image in front of other people. And we see this in Belshazzar. We see him uh, making a, a big party and wanting to impress people uh, with who he is. Reputation can be that for us as well to divert us and to console us about the reality of death. Another thing he says is romance. Uh, empty or attempts at intimacy and cheap quick and easy ways and we see this with this king's wives and his concubines and then another way Ernst Becker says in denial of death is not just romance or reputation reputation romance but religion that desire to find meaning in life the desire to transcend the desire to to one day get to the pearly gates and to be allowed to enter in inside there's we, we use religion and this king He said, let's, uh, let's raise a glass to the gods. 
we use those things in our lives as well. Steve Jobs, the legendary founder and CEO of Apple, did a 60 Minutes interview uh, several years back, and he was asked at the end of the interview, I wish they'd tacked it on to the middle of the beginning, but they said, they asked him whether or not he believed in God. And he said that there are seasons in his life where he, he has believed in God and seasons where he did not believe in God. And then he went on to say that when he was diagnosed with cancer, he really began to want to believe that there was a God. That he, he couldn't just, uh, one of his, I'm almost quoting him, but he said, I just can't get to the place where it just all fades to black, where everything just fades to black. He confessed that that's why he was reluctant to put uh, on and off switches on all Apple devices. Just the thought of pushing a button and it all goes to black. What are you numbing out with? Another question to ask, the second one of these three, what voices what voices am I listening to? There's a common pattern in Daniel. Have you picked up on it? Where something will happen, a dream or a writing on the wall, and this really important, powerful man will say, what does it mean? What does it mean? And he already he has these advisors. And you know, you know what? You may not be a big person at your medical practice or law firm or you know, uh, your architect, wherever you work, your place of business. You may not be a big person with official advisors, but everybody's got voices. And they're screaming at us. And everybody's got a few voices that they trust. Some of you say, well, the voice I trust is science. I don't deny science. I don't disparage science. I'm a huge fan of science. I've preached a few entire sermons on how science and Christian faith are actually compatible. They do not compete or contradict with each other. They're very, very compatible. But science tells us how things work. But it can't, it can't answer why. And one writer says that the human heart needs science, but it also needs song. And, and we, there's just, science has its limits. The voices of science, though immensely valuable, have limits. You say, my voices are politicians or entertainment or, or such. All these voices, here's the pattern of Daniel. These trusted voices gave them enough to make, to make them think that they were immensely trustworthy. But when it mattered, these voices failed them. I can't help but think that you have some voices of people in your life that you think you could trust, but when it matters, they're going to fail you. But the pattern, conversely, is this young man, Daniel, at every juncture, at every time, he believed there's a God who spoke, a God who is speaking, and a God who will speak. Am I aware of the writing, of the writing finger of God in my life? Sort of a strange question, but we're talking about detached, severed hands, so why not have an awkward, clumsy question? Am I aware of the writing finger of God in my life? Uh, let's see how this story plays out in this fifth chapter. Therefore, he sent the hand. The hand, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. This hand, this finger on the wall in Daniel 5 is not the first time in the scripture. Take a look at two instances with Moses. The first is with Pharaoh. Exodus 8, 19. This is the finger of God. The magician said to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them as the Lord has said. Go, go forward to Exodus 31. It's Moses coming down from the mountain. He's got 
two tablets and ten commandments. And it says this in Exodus 31, 18. When he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. Once the physician, Dr. Luke in Luke eleven twenty says, if I, uh, records Jesus saying, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Romans 12 would say that God has written his heart, he's inscribed it, uh, engraved it inside of us, inside of our hearts. God speaks. God's voice is trustworthy. Will we listen to him? What are you numbing, what are you numbing out with? Uh, what voices are you listening to? And what about the finger of God? Will you be aware, more aware of God speaking? Look, God speaks in different ways. If anything, this story tells us, don't think everything about God is predictable. If you can predict God, you have a manageable deity. You put God in a box, the God that you want, the God of your own making, and that's not God. And I've lived long enough to know God will really do some funky things. He'll do some mysterious things. He'll speak through some folks you don't think he's going to speak through. He'll uh, show, give you dreams and visions, and he will speak. He is a God who is talkative. Are we listening? I think of the famous little prophet guy, Samuel, who said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And if you're following other voices and you think some of these worldly voices are trustworthy, I'm telling you, if you hadn't found it out now, you're going to. Your science is going to let you down. Politics is going to let you down. Entertainment, even Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, they're going to let you down eventually. These are not ultimately trustworthy verses. I'm, I'm just going for ratings by mentioning them. They're going to be here next week as well um, at Fonner Church. So these, uh, this is the meaning behind these words, these fancy words. Mene, mene means your days are numbered. With Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember this king? It was decades, like hard heart, soft heart, hard heart. The grace of God pursued him for decades. Now you're going to say, preacher, this isn't fair. Someone after the 930 said, Robert, that doesn't seem fair. I said, let's talk about it this week. But is it fair? I don't know if it's fair. It doesn't seem fair, but I'm not, look, I'm not God. But Nebuchadnezzar, it was decades of God's grace and patience following him. For Belteshar, it was one night. But here's what I want to say. This is the most important thing. I don't know the time that God gives you. I don't know the time that God gives me. But your days are numbered. Tekel, you're measured and found lacking. Who among us is lacking? Can I say everybody? Uh, you're not getting it if you come to church and you're strutting your stuff. You're, you're missing it if you think we are pious, pretty, perfect people up in here. Our message to, as we gather um, every week is that we all uh, are found lacking. All of us don't measure up. All of us have made a mess. In fact, we're about to take communion before we go. And that's the testimony when we come to the Lord's table is that we've made a mess of things. And we worship and remember the one who never messed up, who measured up perfectly, and who allows us to be measured up. Uh, Perez, your stuff will be divided for others uh, to plunder. I want us to come today to, to this point of closing. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I just want to pray for us and then lead us as we come to the elements and do this in remembrance of him. As you... Um, are in this place, and you know, I know it's a religious cliche in America, but if you want to bow your head and close your eyes, but I do want to ask you, have you ever gotten to a place in your life? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking you about mom and them. I'm asking you about you. Have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you just say, God, I don't measure up?
And you know it's a really important thing. In fact, the balance of eternity is at stake. Where you say, through prayer, through sincerity, you say, I need you. My sin has caught up to me. Life itself has overwhelmed me. And I need a Savior. I want to invite you today to pray that prayer, to invite Jesus Christ into your life. It's why we are here. And hardly a week goes by where one of the ministers here doesn't get to talk with someone about their journey, their spiritual journey, of whether they've received Jesus Christ. There is one who knew no sin, who became sin for you. And I hope today, if you have not, that you will make that commitment to Jesus Christ, that you'll let him in your life, and that you'll say, I need a Savior, and I need a Lord, and I want to put my life under the trusted voice of my Savior. I want to stop living my life numbing out the pain and the junk and the trauma and all the stuff beneath the iceberg. And so today, would you pray that prayer? Would you invite Jesus into your life if you never have? And would you let one of us know about it? And so many of you are believers in Christ. You've prayed the prayer. You've made the confession. And you're not, you know, looking for tequila in the communion cup. But you know there are ways in your life that you're not honoring God. And I want to, in love, as your pastor, if I am your pastor, I want to say to you, stop dishonoring God in this way. And open up your life, the God who is, not the God you want to be. And wherever you are right now, would you say, God, I want to serve you faithfully. I've got a, I've got a body, I've got a house, maybe I've got a job, I've got a family. I've got some things I don't like. Instead of just waiting till all those things are perfect, I want to serve you right where I'm at. I want to be faithful in that. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, may you receive our worship. As we do what you said to do, do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. As our leaders make their way to the table, we're going to ask you to follow the person in front of you. If you're not a believer, this isn't about church affiliation or membership or you know any, any of that type of stuff. This is just your life and your heart. If you're an unbeliever, we're so glad that you're here today and there's no judgment to this. We're just trying to follow what the scripture teaches. You just sit back and observe if you will. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you come forward, follow the person in front of you. Take the cup, you'll take two. One has the bread, one has the juice. Uh, here's what I do. If you wanna do what I do, you can do what you wanna do. But I take it back to my seat and pray for a few, uh, for a minute or two and just thanking God and remembering his good grace in my life. How I don't measure up, but how he does. And then I take the cup. And then Chris Mixon will come up and uh, close out our service.